Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad you're tuning into another episode here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Blessed to be with you as always. Thank you for your input. Thank you for your prayers. I just want you guys to know as I anticipate each week uh, preparing for this podcast, recording this podcast, that my prayer is that God blesses you as you study the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. So I just pray that this has been a great opportunity for you to understand who Jesus is in a more personal, intimate way. And that's just been a blessing to me to hear some of you guys and your emails. And as always, if you want to shoot me an email and just tell me maybe something that's going on in your life or how this podcast has blessed you or a prayer request, you can contact me at info at standstrongministries.org. You can check out our website at standstrongministries.org as well. All my information's there, books, things uh, to your liking. Uh, We just want you to know that our ministry exists to help reinforce biblical truth in the life of the Christian, that you will stand strong no matter the cost. Uh, Times are tough, and we are definitely living in a time an era where a lot of believers out there do not spend time in God's Word. And so that's why we created this podcast to teach people contextually the Scriptures. And so right now, we are going through the Gospel accounts, and today is podcast 75, hard to believe, but we continue to trek right through. And today we have five key lessons that I want to talk about. So the title today is Lessons to Live By, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. Now, again, as always, a backdrop leading up to this period of time. Remember, Jesus was remaining in the area of Judea, and he was invited to dine with a Pharisee when you go back to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. And if you remember, he was being condemned because he did not observe their ceremonial washing. And so this led to this open rebuke uh, by Jesus calling out the religious hypocrisy of not just the Pharisees, but also the lawyers, because then they got themselves involved. And then shortly after that, Jesus was in the midst of the large crowd in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and he presents five warnings that we talked about in our last podcast. And he really focused in on the disciples and his followers from verses 2 through 56. It was a big chunk that we looked at. And he, and he ended by illustrating the need for all of us to repent and to get right with others, to get right with him. He said that in verses 57 and 59. This obviously provokes the people And so they have this deeper conversation, which we're going to now see in chapter 13 here of Luke, where Jesus starts engaging them on various different topics. And so here, the first lesson in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, is the motives to repent. Now notice here, it says in verse 1, there were some present at that very time, this is going back to chapter 12, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish." 
Right, so the first lesson here on repentance, notice, as I mentioned before, that Jesus is continuing a discussion here in chapter 13 from chapter 12 regarding judgment because he had just ended on that. And so now from the judgment, he's leading to repentance. And what he does is he offers two calamities. And there were two calamities that were known by the Jews. Notice they brought up about the Galileans to Jesus. And he does this to drive home the frailty. So he's using what they're conveyed to him and that he conveys in verse 4 about 18 whom this tower had fallen on. So they talked about murder. And then he talks about this tragic thing about this tower falling on these Jews. And again, to drive home the frailty of life and the need for them to repent. The first illustration that was referred to here and this murdering that took place at the temple by Pilate, the, who was a Roman governor, remember, in AD 26 to 36, this was something that was mentioned by Josephus, actually in one of his famous historical writings called Antiquities. If you look at chapter 18, verses 60 and 62, he mentions this account. Now, this other one about the 18 whom the, this tower and Siloam had fallen on, this second illustration that Jesus lays out about these people who died tragically was to stress that death upon these Jews doesn't didn't necessarily mean that because they were unrighteous, this thing happened to them. It doesn't mean that they're less righteous than those who are still alive. He's saying that we all need to repent and we don't know when our life will end. And therefore, make sure that you repent in this life so that you will not perish in the next. So the lesson very clearly with these two illustrations that Jesus gives is that life is frail and we need to make sure that we repent of our sins. Now, the verses here that we just talked about will feed into these other lessons because now the second lesson is about the fig tree and it's a parable that Jesus gives in verses six through nine. In verse six, it reads, and he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. So here, right off the bat, Jesus uh, brings in this parable, and it's a way to kind of employ a lesson, and he gives a fig tree. Now, this is this is significant because a fig tree represents Israel. You see this in Hosea 9, verse 10. And so this was kind of a way to underscore uh, that God was looking at his people for fruit, okay? So fig trees were very common in Judea and Galilee. So they can link it not just in the tradition that they had, historically speaking, in the Jewish scriptures of Israel representing it, but also the the significance that fig trees played in that time. So in verse 7, when he says, and a vine dresser comes to this fig tree, and and he says, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, according to Leviticus 19, verse 23, It was actually forbidden to take fruit from a tree in the first three years. So notice that this vine dresser comes to this fig tree and he says, for three years now, I've been coming to seek fruit. So for six years, this tree is six years old and yet it has not produced fruit. Now, another thing that's interesting kind of speaks to this vine dresser saying, why should it use up this ground? Vineyards would often plant certain fruit trees to provide additional flavor it was kind of a subtle bouquet uh, to their wine. So in this case, this particular fig tree isn't producing fruit, nor is it adding flavor to the other vines. So it's just taking up dead space. So now here in verse 8, when he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
What's interesting about this is that the servant takes a very uncommon approach, an uncommon practice, if you will, to treating a fig tree. Now, this points to several things. In one sense, when you see the master agreeing to this and giving another year, this is, is reflective of God's mercy. But when you look at the, 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 the fig tree and how it's struggling to bear fruit, think about sometimes our own lives. Now, later, remember the significance of this fig tree, you will see later in the ministry that Jesus condemns a fruitless fig tree. So this is Matthew 21, 18 through 22, Mark 11, 12 through 14, and verses 20 through 24. Later on, Paul in his first epistle in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, he describes a spiritual fruit that we should display as a Christian. Our growth in Christ should be evident. Now, it's important to point out that at this time, at this point of time in Jesus' ministry, he was entering his fourth Passover. When you keep in mind this parable of the fig tree, it makes sense what Jesus was saying when considering the previous Passovers. So, for instance, when you go back to the first Passover, Remember, Jesus drove out the money changers at the temple in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The second Passover consisted of the Jews challenging and threatening Jesus. John wrote in John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The third Passover in John 6, 4 involved Jesus touring the Gentile land and the crowds only were interested in him performing signs to do what? Remember, to enrich their own physical status. That's what they ultimately cared more about. Now this leads us to the final Passover, which represents a time of God's mercy and God's grace. So you kind of see this progression. That's one thing I love again, when we look at the chronological order, it kind of really puts things in its proper context to understand why Jesus was doing what he was doing when he was doing it. So the second lesson here is, is about bearing fruit and not being fruitless. Lesson number three now in verses 10 through 21 of Luke chapter 13, the healing of a crippled woman. Verse 10 reads, Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his own ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So what's the purpose of this account being put here in Luke chapter 13? Why did Luke mention this in the midst of all these lessons that we're learning? Well, let's take a closer look. You go back to verse 10, notice it says that Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now in Greek, it's plural. So more than likely, Jesus had spent anywhere from two to three Sabbaths teaching at this period of time as he's moving towards Jerusalem. 
What's also interesting about this is that despite the opposition that he was faced, he was still receiving some invitation by religious leaders to come in there and to give lectures. Now, another thing to note here in Luke chapter 13, verse 10, this is the last recorded incident of Jesus in a synagogue. That's important, so keep note of that. Now here in verse 11, it says that this woman who had a disabling spirit, literally in Greek, incapacitated, she had a spirit that was causing weakness. It was going on for 18 years, we're told. And this phrase that she was bent over by Luke means that she was doubled up position, meaning she was so crippled and that way she could not erect herself. She couldn't stand right up. So it's clear that this woman was suffering from a disability that was caused by uh, some form of demonic activity. And so when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he says, woman, you are freed. That literally means you are released from control from your disability. That's why in the text when I was looking at this, it really does seem that there was some type of demonic barrier that was here based on the language that's used by Luke. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorifies God. Now remember, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath several times or several instances when he did this. For example, when you go back when Jesus healed a man with a withered hand in Luke chapter 6, 6 through 11, then the paralyzed man in John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17, and the man with dropsy in Luke chapter 14, 1 through 6. So this particular miracle, though, points to the power Jesus has over Satan and the rest that he brings on the Sabbath. Because remember, that's, that's the true purpose and meaning of the Sabbath is to find complete rest, to be completely restored. So this healing provided people one more opportunity to repent and believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's why I believe that Luke puts this right where he puts it. Not only are we dealing with chronological order, but the significance of this. Remember, because we're talking about repentance, we're talking about bearing fruit, not being fruitless. But here in verse verse 13 is also finding restoration, finding healing only solely in Jesus Christ. But of course, the ruler of the synagogue says here, gets indignant. Literally in Greek means judged to be wrong. So he's wronging Jesus saying, you fool, why did you do this? Because he had healed, and the Greek means that he had brought someone to health, to recover them to health on the Sabbath. And he's saying, look, there's six other days to do this. Healing on the Sabbath was not something that anyone should do. Now, obviously, no one could perform the miracles that Jesus was performing. But notice, they didn't even care. And this is the one thing that they can get Jesus on, was that he was a breaker of the Sabbath. Not only that, but of course, he didn't partake in their ceremonial laws. But yet, once again... Jesus is clearly pointing out that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that is fulfilling the prophecies of old. And then verse 15, he answers and says, you're a hypocrite because you guys are willing to untie an ox or your donkey and lead it to water it. And yet this woman, he says, who's a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound, which points back to why I believe it's demonic activity, because here... In the Greek, it's this physical hardship. So he's pointing out that Satan has bound her in this control and has caused her to be so disabled. He says, but yet I've loosed her. I freed her. I released her from this control, from this bond. So this shows this demonic presence that this woman was under and, and clearly the blindness, the lack of repentance and the fruitless nature of these Jewish people as he was preaching in the synagogues. These Jews were so caught up 
in Halal or Shammai, all of these different type of interpretations of the laws that they're trying to live by. But Jesus is publicly calling them out and exposing their inconsistencies that they have on the Sabbath and the lack of concern they have for human life. These Jews were in violation of breaking the Sabbath, and yet they're getting on Jesus, and that's why he's calling them hypocrites once again. Jesus he started out calling the people hypocrites all the way back in chapter 12, verse 54, and he goes all the way now here to chapter 13 to verse 21, and he's exposing this fruitless life, this lack of faith that they have. Rather than see repentance in the hearts of the people, Jesus confirms this again and again for their lack of interest to obey him, their lack of love for their fellow neighbor. They cared more about their ceremonies, their status, and, and abiding on the Sabbath according to their man-made laws. And so verse 17, as he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And they were humiliated. They were disgraced. And all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. So there were people in the town who were blown away by what Jesus was doing. Listen to these words by the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It writes, quote, It was Jesus' mission among the people of the nation to loose them from crippling influences and bring them to uprightness. He was a graphic example of Jesus' touch, bringing the woman to a position of uprightness. Jesus healed her by his words, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity, and by touching her. Immediately, she straightened up and praised God, this act of praising God was the proper response to the work of Jesus. It showed that people were understanding his mission, end quote. So the third lesson here is about God's power of healing. And we need to put our faith in that. We are not to be like these Jews who became indignant and began to scold God like he didn't know what he was doing. And all the while, this woman who was who is being attacked by Satan, who is bound under the control of the enemy and disabled and freed from Jesus, she praises him. And that's what we need to learn, my friends, in this third lesson, is that we need to cry out God for, for his healing power, to be delivered even from the dominion of darkness, and we need to praise him for that. Now, the fourth lesson, Jesus now transitions into a parable about his kingdom in verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 Jesus says, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like and to whom shall I compare it? Verse 19, it says, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. All right, so let's break this down and, and understand more about this parable. Now, the first thing we see in verse 18, when Jesus poses this question and says, to what shall I compare it? The way in which he poses it here in the Greek and knowing first century style was a very common rabbinic teaching style. So remember, there was an uproar because Jesus had just healed on the Sabbath. And so right now, during this period of time in the Sabbath, they're probably kicked out of the synagogue because the religious leaders there were pretty upset with Jesus because once again, you know, he's a Sabbath breaker. And so he takes the opportunity as a rabbi to pose a question like this to gather the people around him. Now, if you recall, Jesus had taught about the kingdom of God like a grain of mustard seed in 11 before. Go back to Matthew 13, 31 through 33, Mark 4, 30 through 32. Now, it's important to point out that 
when we're looking at scripture and you see references to things like the grain of mustard seed or birds of the air nesting in branches and talking about leaven, that we look at the usage of it to in order for us to properly in- interpret contextually what the author is trying to convey in this in this case, Luke is recording this account and what Jesus is teaching. Now, there's a lot of usage of these different terminologies. Now, as I mentioned before, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven to be like, you know, a mustard seed and leaven. But here in particular, again, in context of scripture, we're looking at a chronological order of what he's trying to convey. There are times, though, where it does not mean exactly as it did in a different reference. For, for example, the image of birds nesting in trees is something that is used often in the Old Testament. You see that in Psalm 104, verse 12, Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24, and Daniel 4, 10 through 12. And you think, what is this imagery about birds about? What's, what's, what's he trying to convey, like in Daniel and Ezekiel and Psalms? And so Jesus, knowing the scriptures, he's mentioning that here, is he using it in a good way or is he using it in a bad way? Take, for instance, leaven. Now, we typically know that leaven is a bad thing not always a good thing. So the interpretation of the mustard seed seems to be pretty straightforward, right? The mustard seed and also the leaven in context is again, Jesus's overarching theme of the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. But the question is in a good way or in a bad way? So when you reference back to Ezekiel 17 verse 23 and Ezekiel 31 verse six and Daniel four verse 12, they prophesy of the kingdom growth of Jews and also Gentiles, but also revealing the penetrating power of the kingdom that's going on in the world despite Satan and his presence. So we know that God's kingdom will expand. But notice Jesus uses the birds of the air and he uses leaven. And when you do look at the consistent interpretation of how these things are used throughout scripture, they depict corruption and sin. So we know it would be a contradiction for Jesus to be using this terminology to say that the kingdom of God is expanding corruption corruptfully in a way obviously when he's talking about his kingdom it's going to be a perfect kingdom so what's he conveying here i believe that jesus is describing how there will be bad influences how there will be bad teachers false teachers who are trying to corrupt his work and that's what he's warning them if you look at the context he tells them to repent right because life is frail he says not to be like this fruitless fig tree but to bear fruit he gives an example on the Sabbath of him bringing healing, his power healing and restoring and bringing rest because he casts out the control of Satan in this girl's life. The Jewish leaders attack him and then he gathers them around and says, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? What I believe he's doing is exposing the corruption. David Guzik, again, a great commentary, a great pastor in California at Calvary Chapel says, when you look at this terminology hid in it, the idea of hiding leaven in three measures of mill would have offended any observant Jew. This certainly isn't a picture of the church gradually influencing the whole world for good. Even as the recent experience in the synagogue showed religious corruption of some sort, Jesus announced that his kingdom community would also be threatened by corruption and impurity. So I believe the fourth lesson here about the parable of the kingdom in verses 18 through 21 is that we are not to partake in the expansion of corruptful teaching. It makes sense in the context, as I mentioned, that we are talking about repentance, not being fruitless, this woman being healed, and now about the kingdom is not to be about our advances 
is not to be teaching people falsehoods about God, but to teach the truth, just like Jesus was conveying. And so that's why now, when we look at verses 22 through 30, Jesus talks about this narrow gate. And so in verse 22, it says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And verse 23, and someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. So here the final lesson, lesson number five about this narrow gate. Let's take a closer look as to how Jesus kind of ends this period of time in his travel that we can learn from. Now, if you go back to verse 22, when Jesus was now going through these towns and villages and he was teaching, in the Greek it just means formal and informal. So Jesus perhaps wasn't always teaching in the synagogue, but he was teaching in informal ways, probably in people's homes and out in the streets. And this phrase, and he was journeying, it literally in Greek carries this idea to move at a considerable distance towards Jerusalem. So see, once again, in this Lucan account, is is mentioning in great detail, actually, we kind of times, you know, we oftentimes just skip through these particular things and don't read into them much, but we need to. And so as he was journeying towards Jerusalem, with all that's going on, all the things he was teaching about, someone asked him this question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So they want to know, like, how many people are really responding, which I do believe when you go back to verses 18 through 21, when he likened the kingdom of God to a mustard seed in 11, he was talking about the corruption. And I think that's why this question was asked. It's a very sincere one. And this person wants to know, just like we asked today, like, how many people are really going to be turning to the Lord? You know, how big is the remnant that we currently have right now? And so they were troubled by this back then, as you and I are still troubled by it to this very day. So this individual probably was asking this question as a follow-up to Jesus' teachings about his kingdom and all of his followers. And it was a way to kind of shed light on the volume of rejection that was taking place in Jesus' ministry. Now notice Jesus' response in verse 24, where he says, strive. In Greek, it means to make every effort, intensity, struggle to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek, meaning they'll try without success to enter and they will not be able. I love this because Jesus' response is to give this picture of a banquet where people have been invited. The invitations have gone out. The door is wide open. But by the time people realize, you know, hey, I want to give this shot. No, it's too late. The door has closed. The invitation that you had received is over. And this is almost, again, signifying God's mercy of this invitation and this long-suffering waiting. But once the door is closed, it's done. 
And these people cry out. Notice they said that we ain't drank in your presence. Literally in Greek, it's this covenant relationship. They're saying we have this intimate relationship, but there's a disconnect because the master argues back and says, I didn't know you. And you're first to me even as an evildoer. And go back to Psalm uh, 6 verse 8. That's not a good sign. Now this phrase, I do not know, uh, you know, where you come from. To not know of one's heritage is a statement of repudiation and rejection. So that was a bad thing. It wasn't just that you have mutual understanding of who that person is, or you have a little bit interaction with that person, or they're kind of an acquaintance. No, to not know where they come from is, I don't know anything about your heritage. I don't know anything about who you are and your identity. So they're saying, we do know you. We have a covenant relationship. But the master of the banquet says, I don't know you. This is a powerful illustration of God's kingdom to come. He's sent out the invitations. We're living in that phase right now. The invitations have been sent out and a lot of people are sitting on it. They're not repenting. They're not bearing fruit. They're not seeking the healing power of God. They're complaining about petty little things in the church world. They're getting lost and confused. They're expanding the corruption of God's kingdom. You're hearing a lot of these pastors that build these big churches and they keep expanding and growing and they got their international radio ministries and New York Times bestselling books. And guess what? They're a bunch of punks. They're bullies. They're yelling at their staff. They're firing people at will. They're using foul language. Many of them are looking at bad things on the internet. We've even seen people that are getting into uh, alcohol. There's extramarital affairs. And then after all the blow up, you know, they kind of, go off the scene for a while and then they resurface within not even a year and they're all good. And they're saying, yeah, you know what? I'm, I fall, uh, just like every human being falls and I'm a human, you're a human. I can relate. You can relate. And that's the great power of God's uh, mercy and grace. And so I'm back at it, you know, come to my church. And I believe there's a lot of corruption in that and we cannot be fooled by that. And that's what Jesus is getting at here is that a lot of you people think that you have this covenant relationship with me and you don't. And you and I may not like that, but it's the truth right here in the context of scripture. And so this fifth lesson here is that we need to strive. Remember, we need to make every effort. It's intense. We are to struggle to enter through the narrow gate. We are not to take God's grace, his long suffering for granted. That's the final lesson. Because the reality is, as you see here in verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The coming judgment upon those unrepentant souls is going to be unbearable. Matthew 8, 12, Matthew 13, 42, Matthew 22, 13, Matthew 24, 51, Matthew 25, 30. All of these references I just gave you from the book of Matthew talks about coming judgment. As hard as it is to mention punishment, Jesus and his perfect love and justice speaks the truth in effort to draw people to repentance. Your heritage, your identity, where you grew up, how you grew up, it doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And according to Isaiah 25, when he says that all people come from east and west, from north and south, recline at table in the kingdom of God, it's prophetic from the book of Isaiah. Listen to these beautiful words. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and veil that is spread over all nations. So the Jews, remember, they believe in the huge banquet, this huge feast to come where the righteous will dine with him in God's kingdom, that it will happen. 
And that's what he's reflecting on here in verse 29. But you need to repent if you're going to experience it. See, the Jews just thought that they had an in. They thought because they were following the law the way that Halal or Shammai or whoever told them to, they had all these new traditions by the time Jesus comes on scene. They thought that they were the stuff and they were a guaranteeing in into the kingdom. The invitation's already been given and when that banquet comes, they're going to be in. But guess what? They're going to miss the kingdom. So my friends, I just pray when you, you and I look at these lessons to live by, I pray if there's any repentance you need to take uh, in your life that you would take that opportunity right now. However you're listening to this podcast, just repent of your sins, get right with him. And if there's people in your life who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, give them the opportunity. Hey, share the gospel with them. Give an opportunity to repent. That You would not only lead them in a prayer, but that you would help them understand who Jesus Christ truly is. Second lesson, bear fruit. Don't be fruitless. We are responsible. We have duties as Christians to live out our faith, to add to our faith, as you see in 2 Peter chapter 1. The third lesson about the healing of the crippled woman, believe in the power, the healing power that is of Jesus Christ. The fourth lesson, the parable about the kingdom, we are not to partake in corruption. And there's a lot of Christians out there who pretend to be doing the work of God, but they're just expanding their own kingdom. They're expanding their own name. And we are not to partake in that. And the fifth lesson and the final one about the narrow gate is we are to strive. We are not to take God's mercy, his invitation for granted. We respond to it. And I pray that God will use you as I pray he uses me to lead more people to Jesus Christ. Thank you guys for listening. I love you and I'll see you on the next episode. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the Word of God.